We're in Deuteronomy chapter 8 as we work through uh, this book, and uh, it's 20 verses, and so listen carefully, uh, as always, as this is God's word. This is Moses writing to the people of Israel, speaking to the people of Israel. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, this is the key verse of this chapter, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us through a time of testing, both with the pandemic and with prosperity. 
Teach us today to learn the lessons of these times of testing, showing us the need to remember and teaching us the need for humility. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning. Help us to consider what it means to be your people. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus clearly and to know God more. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, as I said in a weekly email uh, this week, our passage for today, indeed the entire book of Deuteronomy, has a major emphasis on the act of remembering. In this book, Moses is regularly exhorting uh, the people to remember God and not to forget what he's done for them. Well, why is that? Well, if we have no memory, then we are somewhat adrift because memory anchors us to the past, interprets the present, and charts a course for the future. Consider the case of Jimmy. Jimmy had a rare neurological disorder called Karsakoff syndrome. This disorder affects the memory. His story is told in the fascinating book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which has got to be one of the best book titles ever, by Dr. Oliver Sacks. Dr. Sacks died this past year. He was a, a British rabbi, psychologist, English lord, and knight. So it was Sir Lord Rabbi Dr. Oliver Sacks. And uh, he writes about Jimmy. He met Jimmy in 1975. And he said Jimmy would walk into his doctor's office with a cheery, hiya doc, nice morning. Do I take this chair here? And he was cooperative and he answered all the questions as Dr. Sachs checked his memory. He remembered his childhood home, his friends, his school, and the Navy, which he had joined in 1943 during World War II. He was stationed on a sub, and he still could remember Morse code. He recalled vividly his service in the Navy through the end of the war in 1945. But that's where the memory stopped, completely stopped. Jimmy couldn't remember anything from 1945 all the way to the present, which was then 1975, a time period of 30 years. He thought that Truman was still president. The periodic table stopped with uranium. Well, some of the scientists here, it goes beyond uranium now, right? Okay. Um, he had no idea that anyone had ever been to the moon. He had no recollection of anything that had happened more than a few minutes in the past. He thought he was 19 years old, not his actual age of 49. And one time Dr. Sachs showed him a mirror, gave him one of those small handheld mirrors. And Jimmy gazed at the middle-aged man with bushy gray hair. And he was shocked. And in Dr. Sachs' words, he suddenly turned ashen and gripped the sides of the chair. What's going on? What's happened to me? Is this a nightmare? Am I crazy? And Dr. Sachs calmed him down by taking him to the window to look outside and watch a ball game in the park below. And he removed the bewitching mirror. And he left them there alone for a few minutes. And then he returned 
And Jimmy was still standing at the window watching the kids in the park. And then he turned around and saw Dr. Saxon said, Hiya, Doc. Nice morning. Do I take this chair here? And he looked at him and said, have, have we met before, Mr. G? Nope, can't say that we have. And over the next nine years, as doctor and patient, Jimmy and Dr. Sachs were introduced and reintroduced to each other time and time again. He stayed in the convalescent home where Dr. Sachs worked, but he never learned his way around the halls. He was good at rapid games like checkers and tic-tac-toe, but he got lost at chess because the moves were too slow. And Dr. Sachs wrote, I had never encountered, even imagined, such a power of amnesia, the possibility of a pit into which everything, every experience, every event would fathomlessly drop. And the staff at the home spoke of Jimmy as a lost soul. Without memory, we're all lost souls. You see, in the Bible, memory is more than just cognitive recall, such as remembering the dates for a history test or remembering where your car keys are. In the Bible, memory includes the mind, it includes the emotions, and includes the will. Biblically, remembering, if we take the word apart, is remembering reattaching something that's been cut off. It is a whole person activity where the past comes alive in the present and it suggests actions for the future. Consider the thief hanging on the cross in Luke 23 and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or Hannah Zhao in 1 Samuel 1 and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Or even in the fourth commandment, which we'll get to in a few weeks in Exodus 20 verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the kind of memory that anchors us to the past tells us where we are in the present and charts a course for the future. And we need that kind of memory. We need an anchor because we tend to drift. We tend to slide. We tend to go astray. We can honestly sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. As Hebrews 2, 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Do you sense within yourself the possibility, even the tendency of drifting? I do. I've been a pastor for 30 years, and I feel the need to constantly be on guard so that I won't drift spiritually. I've seen it happen far too often, not only in my own life, but in the lives of many members of this church. And if you think you're immune to drifting away from the gospel, drifting away from sound doctrine, drifting away from Christ, then I would humbly ask you to think again. After all, the Lord gives us repeated warnings right here in the book of Deuteronomy 
about this. Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 9, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Deuteronomy 4.23, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image to form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. About 16 times in this book he tells us not to forget. In our text for today, the key verse, as I said, is verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. We must pay careful attention so we do not drift. And that's the emphasis of this chapter. Deuteronomy 8 looks uh, both backwards to the years of testing in the wilderness and forwards to the good land to which the Lord is bringing Israel. And in future days, Israel must remember God's goodness to them in bringing them through the wilderness and giving them the land. To forget the Lord and to turn to other gods would have tragic consequences. And so God tests them, just as he may test us, to keep us from drifting away, which forces us to ask the question, why? Why does God test us? Look at verses 1 through 5. If you have a sermon outline, again, you can download that from the website along with the worship guide. Um, why does God test us? Let's look again at verses 1 through 5. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Deuteronomy 8 is introduced with the familiar words of Deuteronomy 4, verse 1, which says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. This command to listen or hear is repeated in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and now in chapter 8. God repeats himself because his people don't listen and they easily forget. And for that reason, he also tests them, which reminds them of their great need to depend on him. So we have two sort of cooperating themes, side-by-side -side themes in this chapter. We have the need to remember, but that depends on the need to exercise humility, both of which God brings about through the testing of his people. So the themes of remembering and humility are brought about by the testing of Israel's loyalty to God. And we're going to see some tests in this chapter. The first one comes that Israel's tested in the wilderness. 
Verse 2 says they were tested in order for God to see what was in their hearts. In the course of urging the Israelites to obey God's commands, Moses tells them to remember how the Lord led them in the wilderness. These 40 years were hard years. They were humbled through hardship. And if you remember at the beginning, God just didn't lead the people by the most direct route from Egypt to Canaan. And there's probably several reasons for that. They had to go through the desert region uh, in any case, and God used that to humble them and to test them. And that then got extended to 40 years because of the refusal of the people of, uh, to enter Canaan the first time they had reached its borders. So they're in these extreme circumstances. However, we're told here God provided all their needs, whether that was food or clothing or physical strength. The manna was designed to teach them that the basic source of life is God himself and his words. The Hebrew word for humble means to be weak and thus dependent. And Israel needed to learn complete dependence on God. In Egypt, life was predictable. Every year, the Nile flooded, which provided the fertility uh, for food production. But in Canaan, it's different. There, they would be dependent on rain. And the rainfall, God says, would depend on their obedience to God. So in the desert, God's training them to trust him and to rely on his provision. And that's why he says, uh, God says, verse 3, God let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. During the wilderness years, God let Israel hunger and then fed his people to teach them to fully depend on him. And we have to recognize God still tests his people. We'll see that very clearly when we get to 1 Peter this fall. And that uh, testing doesn't necessarily mean that God's angry at us or he's displeased. And we shouldn't think that it's unusual or even that it indicates some sort of uncertainty about whether you know, we really belong to God or not, whether we're part of his people or not. In fact, biblically, testing indicates that we are his people. And the point here is, in the wilderness, God had given to Israel the loving discipline which a father might give a son. And we see that, verse 5. Know that in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, the classic passage on that kind of loving discipline is Hebrews 12. And there, too, the assurance is given uh, that discipline is evidence of sonship, not a lack of sonship. It's evidence of belonging, not a lack of belonging. Hebrews 12:7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? As saved sinners living in an evil world, God uses discipline to draw us away from sin. Because, again, Hebrews 12, 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And over the years, there's been lots of Christians who found that the hard times have been the most valuable times of their life because they've learned to depend on and to grow close to the Lord. The second reason that God brought Israel through this time of testing in the wilderness 
comes at the end of verse 3, where it says that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, this verse is a little confusing because the point here is not that human beings are intended to live by following what God says, as true as that is. But the point here is that ultimately people live because God provides for them. And that if God didn't provide for them, then they wouldn't be able to live, period. In the wilderness, they had to trust God and rely on him to provide in special ways because they were unable to provide for themselves. They depended on his word to give them what they needed. And as Christians, we have to realize the same thing's still true of us. We pray in the Lord's Prayer often without even thinking about it. We ask God to give us our daily bread. And however that prayer is answered, we're acknowledging that in the end, everything comes from God. And our whole lives are lived under his continuing providence. Which is why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, in his confrontation with the devil. When he was tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread, in Matthew 4, it says, But he answered his written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew what it meant to depend completely on God and be satisfied with what the Lord provides. So why does God test us? Because he loves us. And he wants us to be holy. And he wants to show us that we're part of his much-loved people. So that's the why. Next comes the question, the next three will be a lot quicker. How does God test us? Verses six through 10, how does God test us? It says, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of figs, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you, in which, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. So, verse six links this section with the first section. Because God's been lovingly disciplining the Israelites, they're supposed to keep his commandments and fear him. And they're to do this because they're now on the, God's now on the verge of bringing them into this good land, which he has for them. But that means Israel's now going to be facing a very different kind of test on entering the promised land. This test would not be uh, the test of being deprived like they were out in the wilderness. This will be a test of having plenty, for they're going to be living in a land flowing with milk and honey. And they might be tempted to think, since they're now living in a land of plenty, or they'll soon be living in a land of plenty, that they no longer need to depend on the Lord for any of their blessings. And so in the verses there, there's this sort of lyrical description of the land with an abundance of provisions. And it ends, it says, and they will eat and be full. It's the same God who tested and disciplined them in the wilderness who brings them into the land of plenty 
and provides for them. They were never less than his people when wandering in the wilderness, and they won't be more his people after they enter the promised land. Whatever circumstances God brings his people through, both then and now, he's still God. He's still their God. They're still his people, and they're still living in covenant with him. As it was for Israel then, so it is for believers now. At the same time, we have to remember that the blessings of the new covenant are primarily spiritual. Our good land consists of the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Israel only knew the Messiah in type and shadow and prophecy and promise, and even those were somewhat limited at the time. But now we have uh, the New Testament with a clear revelation of Christ, and by faith we're brought into union with Christ. And so we have that in the present. But also in the future, this good land looks forward to the new heavens and new earth that we'll read about in Second Peter and in the book of Revelation. It's the final destination of the whole people of God from every age and every place. When Israel ate and were full, they were to bless the Lord for the good land he had given them. They're to recognize his goodness in all that had come about on their behalf and express their thanks to him, as should we. Sometimes God tests us by sending us out into the wilderness, forcing us to depend on him. And to be honest, it's felt a little like that the past two years of the pandemic. Other times God tests us by giving us great blessings and providing for us beyond anything we deserve. And truth be told, the last two years have had a lot of that as well. At the beginning of the pandemic, our deacons thought there's gonna be a lot of needs for them to meet. And so in the last two years, we have built up the deacons fund. Lots of you have contributed to that uh, generously. But two years down the road, there hasn't been much of a demand for their assistance because the Lord has provided for us. It felt like the wilderness, but this whole time we've been living in Canaan. And for that, we should be grateful. So that's the why and the how. Next, uh, we have to ask when does God test us? Verses 11 to 17, when does God test us? Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Of course, the danger for the Israelites is that they're going to take God's blessings for granted. 
And they're going to forget to thank him. And they're going to forget that he's the one who's given them all these blessings. And true gratitude is shown, it says in our text, not simply by thanksgiving, but through obedience. It says, lest you forget by not keeping his commands. And Moses gives us another warning here against forgetfulness. He says such forgetfulness could come about because of our pride. See in verse 14, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And of course, our hearts are lifted up by the attitude that's expressed in verse 17. My power, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Not only would it be possible for the people of Israel to forget that it was God who'd given them the victory, that could easily lead them to forgetting their time of testing in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they had to be completely dependent on God. There was no question of crediting their survival to their own power and might. God gave water when there was no water. He provided manna when there was no food. He kept them safe, leading them, verses 15 and 16, through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. You know, as time passes, it's easy to allow the memory of God's goodness to us to fade. It's why God gave them feasts like Passover and tabernacles. Every year they had these feasts. The main purpose was to remind them of God's deliverance, of God's goodness, in order to keep the memory of God's love and his goodness for them alive. We have to note here the end of verse 16. He says the humbling and testing times are difficult for Israel, but he had a good purpose in mind. It might be to do you good in the end. Now that could refer to Israel's settlement in Canaan, but it could also indicate that God is teaching them and us lessons in the wilderness that will always be valuable. Like us, Israel would face the test of time. The longer they enjoyed the prosperity of Canaan, and the longer we enjoy the prosperity of Loudon, the greater the danger of forgetting the Lord and all that he's done for us. They would tend to become proud and boast that through their own power and strength they had accumulated this wealth. You see the need for humility. We need humility in order to remember that it's the Lord who's provided for us. We have to admit it's not our power and it's not the might of our hands. God tests us when we forget. When we forget our wilderness experiences, when we forget the blessings he's provided, when we forget the Lord himself. It takes humility to remember. And when we forget, times of testing often arise. So that's the why, the how, and the when. Finally, we need to ask where. Where does God test us? Picking up again at verse 17 to the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. 
like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now Israel had to fight its way to the conquest of Canaan. Some of you remember that from a year ago when we went through the book of Joshua, and they had to settle in the land. And it'd be way too easy uh, for them to think that they had gained the victory by their own strength. We're the ones that did the fighting, forgetting that it was God who strengthened them and who had given them every success in battle, and forgetting there's a few times to God taught them a lesson by removing uh, his hand from them, and they got beat. But it tells us here that those attitudes of forgetting God, of having our pride, of thinking we did this, says those start in the heart. It's possible to express thanks to God with our lips while the heart begins to take the credit. It's also true and it's vital for them to remember that victory over the Canaanites comes only from God. Remember, when Moses is saying this, they haven't taken the promised land yet. And he's telling them the conquest of Canaan is simply God fulfilling his covenant promise to Israel. There's no reason for Israel to take the credit. In the same way in our Christian lives, it's the power and the grace of God that enables us. We also have no reason to lift up our hearts in pride to congratulate ourselves on what we think are our own great achievements. So Moses gives a warning. He says, if you don't believe me, look at the Canaanites. Why are they destined to perish? Because of their idolatry and their sinful actions. And you, Israel, are in a far more privileged position than they ever were. And if you go the way of the Canaanites and turn to idolatry and other gods and refuse to obey the voice of the Lord, you'll be held even more responsible and you too will perish. He's essentially saying, if you turn to idolatry and their kind of sinfulness, you will become like them with the same result. And yet the hard part of this passage is their hearts will turn away. And Moses knows it. One of the things that makes Moses such a powerful preacher is he's never misled by a warm smile. He knows these people and he knows them well. Moses understands their hearts. Again and again in his preaching, and most of this book is Moses preaching, he anticipates their reactions. He says, do not say to yourself, do not say in your heart, beware lest you say, because he knows this is exactly what they're gonna say. Second, he understands their fears. We saw that last week in Deuteronomy 7, 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? He says, if you say, because he knows their fears. He knows they're going to say that, so he anticipates that. Third, he understands their stubbornness. In the first three chapters, he tells the story of the wilderness journey. He presses home the stubbornness of their unbelief. You see that in Deuteronomy 1. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. In spite of the words of reassurance and grace they received, they simply didn't trust God. God spoke words of grace with great force 
and clarity, and they simply didn't believe him. The great paradox of the book of Deuteronomy, actually you could say the whole Pentateuch, first five books. It's different when it's one of yours. The great paradox is that the story goes on when it ought to end. It ought to end in tears and the curtain come crashing down to bring an end to all the drama uh, Israel goes through time after time after time. It ought to end in the desert and yet God is determined, verse 16, to do you good in the end. It ought to end with the golden calf. It ought to end when they refused to enter the promised land the first time. It ought to end when they demanded water and turned against Moses. It ought to have ended in the exile. And yet the story goes on and on and on. And so although there's a lot of tears along the way, it will not end in tears. How is this so? Because the God who made the promise will keep the promise. And yet how can he keep the promise since the promise is so clearly conditional? He says over and over again, if you are faithful, you will live long in the land, but if you aren't, you won't. So how can the promise be both conditional and certain? In the Old Testament, this is a great paradox of faith. How is God going to do it? And the answer must be that he himself will somehow fulfill the conditions of the covenant so he can make certain the promises of the covenant. And that brings us back to Matthew 4. The Gospels all portray Jesus' experience in the wilderness as a time of testing. He's not tested in the abstract. Deuteronomy 8 stands in the foreground. And in the temptation, we see Jesus' identification with Israel, whose role of sonship and salvation history is now concentrated in the one who is the beloved son. And therefore, the heart of the temptations is found in Satan's attempt to induce Jesus as the son to be unfaithful to his father. He's out in the wilderness, just like the Israelites were. He's being offered prosperity, just like the Israelites were. And yet what the people of Israel failed to do, Jesus did. In their hunger, they failed to trust the word of God. They not only doubted God's goodness, they defied it, and they despised his provisions. And if we're being honest, there's times when we fail to trust the word of God, and there's times when we doubt God's goodness. But Jesus, in contrast to Israel, and in contrast to us, was obedient as the true son of God. He lived by the word of God. He trusted God. He had faith in God's goodness. So why remember? Because God never forgets a promise. Even though we fail to fulfill the conditions for that promise, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, those conditions are fulfilled. And as a result, God remembers the sins of his people no more. And since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can remember the faithfulness of God in the past which will enable us to find the courage to live with humility in the present and be confident in a secure 
future, the promised hope of glory kept for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look over this whole chapter, Deuteronomy 8 is a call to humility. It's asking us to remember with obedience. But if we don't, if we forget, the wilderness awaits. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to remember who you are, to remember what you have done, to remember how you've blessed us. We're so forgetful how good you've been to us, and we're way too quick to take the credit for what only belongs to you. Please forgive us. And by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us. Enable us to have the humility to remember. Enable us to trust your word as we learn the tests of the wilderness and to trust you even more as we learn the tests of prosperity. Work in each of our hearts this year as we learn more about knowing God and through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the one who in contrast to us lived by the word of God, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.